Welcome to Listening with Leaders. I'm Doug Noel, lawyer turned peacemaker. I teach executive leaders how to listen to emotions rather than words so that they can become the leaders everyone wants to follow. And I teach those same leaders how to be authentically present, available, and connected to their families, despite being insanely busy. I have learned that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Learning how to listen to emotions is, in my experience, the foundational skill of life. Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Keith Jarman, welcome to Listening with Leaders. You are the managing partner of the global private equity practice at DHR Global. And I think there are a couple of websites. There's dhrglobal.com and dhrinternational.com, all of which will take you to the site. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You have one of the most fascinating occupations right now. Tell First of all, before we get to that, tell, me, tell, tell us a little bit about your backstory. Well, I'm a former tech executive. Um, I'd like to start a little bit further back, though, because I grew up in a very academic family, and I like to say I'm still waiting for the DNA to transfer from my father. <laughs> um, he was a brilliant brain chemistry scientist at Yale. Wow. Um, he died when I was very young um, at, and, and on sabbatical at Stanford. But I've always been kind of a student of leadership. Um, I pivoted out of pursuit of energy policy. And um, that was really my focus in college pre-law and got into computers, tech and software hardware. So I went to business school rather late, um, Harvard Business School. I was 30 when I went. When I graduated, I was 32, of course, and I got recruited into the PhD program, uh, which was interesting because it would have been in social psychology, organizational behavior, and I did very, very well in those courses, uh, but I had been really just more of a sales and marketing executive up to that point, and I guess I must have shown some professorial tendencies because um, one of my professors, Bob Eccles, who's well-known, he's at Oxford right now, uh, put my name on the list. So I decided to try that for a year to see if I wanted to be my father. Uh, we built coursework in mid-career executive transition, a lot of uh, focus on adult developmental psychology, and it was just incredibly stimulating and interesting work. Uh, but I realized also as a competitive athlete, there was a lot of uh, background in me that was you know, competitive and, and, and liked to build things. And so I sat down with my mentor, Carl Sloan, I uh, passed away in 2015, a wonderful man, Harvard, Harvard Business School, uh, ultimately CEO of Mercer became before he became a professor. And you know, he said, look, um, you, you'd be a really great professor. You'd be a great teacher. But I can tell you want to go, as he put it, hit the market. And so I went into a public company, uh, one of five that was brought in to transform the company. Um, that was a big general management job uh, when you know, ultimately had 1,200 employees. Uh, Thought I was going to run the company. They told me I was going to run the company. And then I saw what was going on in Silicon Valley. And I was a tech software executive before in a communications company and decided I really wanted to flex that muscle. So um, not married, no kids. I literally put my stuff in storage and left. And I, I, I built and ran four startups. I was president and CEO of two. Um, um, uh, the last one was uh, more of a restart, if you will, in terms of the software architecture. So I decided to pivot into something else. And I was asked to consider recruiting. Um, and I 
talked to some of the larger firms, but I'm a builder. So I decided to come to DHR to build. Hmm. I'll, I'll pause there, Doug. I can tell you more from that standpoint. Um, but that's the backdrop. Wow. And so today you are you are in recruiting, but it's a very interesting kind of recruiting because you're you are recruiting C-level executives in private for private equity people. That that's right. And one of the reasons I didn't go to one of the larger firms like Spencer Stewart or Hydric, although I did have a lot of interest in a contract from one of them, was you can't really build your definition of a practice when it's already established inside those firms. Mm -hmm. And at DHR, we were about half the size um, we are today. We're about 175 partners today. We were probably, you know, 75 or 80 at that point. Um, we didn't have formal practice areas. And I had a vision uh, to build a practice focused on investors and the companies they, they fund or buy. Now, Back then, coming out of tech, there was a lot of venture, and I did a lot of venture work. Uh, but if you fast forward through all that today, we place about 100 a year, working mostly with growth equity, private equity, leverage buyout, a broad range of principal investing entities. So also, I put in, into that mixed family offices that do principal investing in companies as well. Uh, and it's become a very active practice in the firm. And I think the thesis was, uh, it, it's all about talent. The only way you can extract value from these companies uh, is to run them better with the right people that are running them. And I think the world has caught up with that thesis, frankly. I think people believe that before, but now it's a very different climate where when you buy these companies, you have to hold them longer. You have to tweak for real operational improvement. And the only way to do that is with the right people. Wow. So what motivates, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, most of these when the when private equity people, I'm going to use private equity, the whole umbrella, they're looking right. for an exit strategy. You know, they're they either want to IPO or sell out, and they're and they've got a time horizon of five to seven years. What motivates somebody to come in to be a CEO on that short of short of time frame? Well, that's a great question, and 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 I think that there is a category of CEO that absolutely loves that kind of thinking because there's no politics really. There's a clear thesis in terms of where you are, where you need to go, how are you going to get there? They're much more execution oriented, I would say. It doesn't mean we don't want strategic thinking CEOs in those slots, but really uh, it's a matter of working with the PE firm to define that path and then execute that path. So what I find is certain types of people uh, resonate with that world because there's a clear path and it's all about your ability to execute with, with focus, create accountability in the organization and drive it forward. There aren't a lot of fringe issues and politics along the way. You're all doing it for the same reason, which frankly is a lot, a lot of it is building a great company, but it's also to uh, return money to the management team and the investors and the partners that are on the board. So, uh, you know, we get involved in various uh, situations. Sometimes it might even be for a deal where they think they need a CEO. It could be 18 months in where they figure out maybe the founder of that business isn't quite right to get it to the next level, or it could be five years uh, after they acquired it, uh, where they find they need a different type of CEO to drive it to the next level and potentially sell it. Interesting. So as the, as the organization grows and develops, the need for a different type of CEO may emerge. Very often, there, there, there is change out at the CEO level, very often, almost always at the CFO level. Um, it, it's almost um, 
automatic in, in most cases that the PE firm that's acquiring a company, uh, unless it's acquiring it from another PE firm where they may have a great C CFO in place, mm. is going to want somebody to come in and professionalize that function. Um, so, um, you know, it's interesting. I got asked by a reporter the other day because the climate has shifted. Are you more or less busy? And I said, well, nobody can be as busy as they were 24 months ago when money was free and, <laughs> and everybody was taking the hill, right? They wanted uh, the growth-oriented executives. You couldn't find enough of them. But what happens at a times like time like this is things shift and the operational fabric of the business may be more challenged. Uh, they find out that the platform they built to acquire and integrate companies isn't quite set up the way they thought it was. So what happens is the type of individuals we end up recruiting shifts a bit. We get a lot of calls on CFOs and COO, chief operating officers at those times. So no matter what the economic cycle is, there's so much money in the system now, trillions of dollars. There's three times as many private funded, private equity funded companies as public companies now, or two and a half. I know it's huge. Yeah, that that we're 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 always busy. Um, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. It's always great when all boats are rising with the tide, but um, it kind of shifts, and then we pivot. I could give you examples of two or three things that are exactly in that that kind of wheelhouse of what's been coming at me over the last you know three months. Wow. So, what is it that gets you really excited in the morning to get up and go to work? You know, I, it's interesting. I I I I realized when I got into this business because I, I kind of tested it a bit, just like I thought about being a professor with a friend of mine who had his own firm. And I wasn't sure, you know, because I wanted to see what it was like. And it, it can be a very tactical business. So you think strategically, of course, with your clients, but it's all about execution. It's all about getting the right people to uh, look at the opportunity, consider the opportunity. Uh, when I reflected on my career and, 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 and back to, you know, sort of my thinking about the PhD, I've always been a student of leadership. I've always thought the, the interesting thing to me about a business is not necessarily just the product or the business model or the industry. It's the organizational structures. How do you get people to actually execute? How do you, how do you lead people to follow in a manner where you can actually get things done? Because all things being equal, that's the only thing that really matters, Right. So that's the kind of thing that always intrigued me and got me excited about business. And over the years, I probably hired thousands of people. Unfortunately, I'd probably fired, you know, 500 or so, right. um, which actually is not that difficult. It's much, much easier to go, much easier to fire people than to go build something. And that's part of the reason I went to Silicon Valley. But, but, but here we're building companies. We're, 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 we're finding people that can create real value they want to move the deep needle. They're really motivated people. And, and the PE firms are uh, equally motivated with a very high bar, very analytic, uh, with, with, with a very rapid pace in terms of how they think about things. They're exceptionally bright people, exceptionally well-educated. So if you put all that in the mix, that's a very interesting world to play in. Oh, I bet. And, and now it's cross industry. It's not just tech. I do just as much in industrial aerospace. I have partners around me that can do consumer or healthcare, life science. So I, in one minute, I could be working a $50 million company. And next minute, I could be working at a $50 you know, $5 billion company, right? So the intellectual stimulation of seeing a lot and getting engaged in different kinds of ways of thinking about industries and business models and people has been uh, very rewarding over the years and 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 seeing these companies grow and uh, and and do what we intended, which is to to exchange in terms of you know a, a monetization uh, exercise for 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 their uh, for their investors. 
what what are the skill sets that are in demand today? Yeah, you know, there, it's interesting. I, I've had a lot of back and forth with people on this. I, I, I think there, there, there are more things that are priority today. I mean, you can't avoid the fact that the technology has, you know, improved to the point where if you don't have a CEO, for example, that really embraces, you know, data, data analysis, analytics, and and knows how and wants to harness that, you know, you so people have to keep. The technology executives, not just technology executives, have to keep pace with that in terms of their decision-making process and capability to motivate, pivot the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think to that point, things just change more quickly. Um, so as things change more quickly, you've got to access and use the tools uh, more appropriately. You have to be more agile. As an executive, you have to build a more agile team around you. You have to build a more agile infrastructure in terms of the organizational structure. So when things do change, that it's not just you, you know, trying to pivot the organization. The organization understands that reality and can actually move, move more quickly. Now, with all that said, I'm a big believer people follow people. And this That's idea that resilience and grit and those kind of things that were important 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago are, 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 more, are more important now or less important now. I don't know. I mean, it is more important now, perhaps. But to say that somebody 20, 30 years ago, given their leadership style, did not need to embrace those things is just wrong. So the, the classic things that really matter, integrity, honesty, transparency, the right way to relate to the human being, if you will, in terms of your staff, in terms of the you know, you know, from the from the person that you know, um, no pejorative intent, sleep sweeping the floors in the morning to the most senior people on the board. On, on the board, you have to make the case that that you're a person that they can and want to follow. So, with all the agility in the world and all the technology capability and all the harnessing of analytics, it, it doesn't matter if people don't want to follow you. That's what I talk about. I talk about becoming the leader that everyone wants to follow. And and the and one of the of course you know from listening to some of my videos that one of the things that I'm really big on is listening, which is why this show is called Listening with Leaders, is because I I, I am of the opinion that not, there are not a lot of leaders that really know how to listen, and it's a foundational skill of life. How important do you think that is? Oh, I I, I mean critical, and frankly, probably in my earlier days I was not as good at it. Um, <laughs> I think I'm learning to get better every day. Frankly, still. Um, I remember one of my key advisors on my board um, in one of my startups was a guy named Bob Bond. He was the former chief operating officer at uh, um, a rational software before it got bought by IBM. And Bob had this wonderful way of entering the room when you were struggling with an issue and asking five questions. By the end of that conversation, without him pointing at anything in particular, you had the answer mm-hmm. because he asked the questions. He heard what you said, he reflected it back, and then you developed the opportunity to create your own solution. I learned a lot from him. Um, I, I, th- I think it's very important to let people see your authenticity through um, the way you communicate in terms of the kind of questions that you ask them. So getting people in my business, uh, on the client side, for example, to embrace key business questions that tie out to the people they're looking for and helping them not jump to conclusions is very difficult um, upfront in terms of developing a thesis about who they want because they're very good at 
deductive reasoning. Right. So you're kind of in this deductive process at the beginning with a theory. And then all of a sudden you take that theory with a scorecard, right? That matches or not particularly well to an individual, which is soft data. You know, they're not numbers. And now you're asking that CEO to think about a candidate or the board to think about a CEO candidate with data, but it's very soft data, very qualitative data, but you can't get them to make a proper decision, frankly, or encourage them to make a proper decision might be the better way to say it, uh, unless, unless you work them through that process in a very considerate way. And so that's part that's part of your job. I mean, you're you're as much as a consultant as you are, a, a you know, a, a recruiter. Well, that's interesting. I think there's two two or three pieces being a recruiter are really important. First is the strategic thinking up front. Now, you're not going to run a McKinsey study, right. but you <laughs> really have to understand the business well enough, the business model, right. what the challenges are, uh, what the opportunities are so that you can tie that those top business objectives in year one, year two, year three to the competencies that are required in the role. And then from there, you can create the documentation that more crystallizes that in terms of experience and qualifications, as well as the softer leadership and cultural fit things that you need to address. But then you're in the market, then you're recruiting. So right. recruiting is helping people understand there's an opportunity in a very active way and starting a business conversation with them, not necessarily a sales conversation, a business conversation on why they should get excited about it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's, um, the, you know, the, there are a lot of people that that abhor the term soft skills. And I like to remind them that soft skills was a, a term coined by the U.S. Army Training Command in the 1960s to distinguish the skills that a commander had to have to command a battle space opposed from somebody driving a truck or a tank or shooting a rifle. And yet the term has gotten completely mischaracterized by many business people. They don't understand. The other thing that I think is very interesting is that we are, as much as we like to think about logic or critical thinking, fundamentally we're emotional beings. And every decision we make is an emotional decision. We just justify it later, but, but it's all emotional. And the neuroscience on this is really fascinating. So that if you, if you, from my perspective, if a leader does not understand those those basic principles, especially around the fact that our human nature is to be emotional, not to be rational, they're they're gonna they're gonna have a hard time getting along with people. Well, I I agree with that, and and I if you sort of layer in the people that I work with almost exclusively, they are off the scale in terms of analytic skill, right. deductive reasoning, the things that make them so successful academically and otherwise. But you're not necessarily thinking about this in the context of getting a deal done in due diligence, although that's the way they think sometimes. Right. So I think you're absolutely right. I, I think people will sometimes over-index on, we'll say, domain expertise in a particular industry or functional expertise in a certain way right. uh, without um, prioritizing the, the leadership and execution capability the softer things that go hand in hand with creating followership, because if you don't have that, the other stuff just doesn't matter. That's right. I mean, wasn't it Henry Ford that said, I don't need to go to school. I can hire people to tell me what I need to know. I just, <laughs> I just need to run the organization, something like that. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, the, 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 in, when I'm working in my field as a mediator, for example, um, 
I've never felt that it was important that I have subject matter expertise in if it's a litigated dispute over that litigation. It was more important that I have a process expertise, that I know how to help people uh, become a decision architect. How do I get people to make a decision to get a case settled? And understanding the process and the dynamics and the communication, all the skills that embody that far more important than being an expert in patent law or whatever it might be. And I think the same thing is true in leadership. Well, well, it, it is. And then there's there's so many different versions of it, depending on who you are and what you're doing. Right. So in my case, my leadership starts with a, a small pod that is my team. And I've created a very tight group that understands who I am. We, we can finish each other's sentences uh, appropriately, but then it extends to the broader partnership we have here where I bring in colleagues when I need assistance and vice versa. And then the partnering I do with the private equity firms and the growth equity firms, as well as CEOs and others, um, it, it, you know, it, it becomes situational too, in terms of what you're flexing right. um, and what the need is. Right. How do you, how do people find you? How do you, how do the private equity people find your reputation? Referral? Well, that's a, that's a good example. I've done a lot over the years to uh, put myself out there with thought leadership on certain things. Um, you know, I guess I'd call that sort of the air cover so they can at least know who I am. Right. Uh, but this business is not about selling software or selling a widget. Um, it's all about trust and chemistry. And really, most of it comes through word of mouth. Um, you know, an example would be you know, search I'm right doing right now for a CFO, and I just completed some work for the CEO of a, a company that's part of a, a private equity firm where I've done 20 different, you know, searches, and he said, call Keith, you know, this guy will get it done for you. Hmm. So this this business is very much about word of mouth. And, and people once in a while come to me and said, look, I'd like to help. I'd like to refer you. I said, I'm not sure you can unless you really work with me and done work where you saw, see me in action. I'm grateful. Please do. But I find that they, people respond to those that have actually experienced the way we work and I work because there's so much chemistry involved based on what their preferences are. Yeah, I, I have the same experience. <laughs> Until you've worked with me, you really don't know what it is that I do. Yeah. <laughs> and it's pretty hard to put me into a box that, that is easy to explain. Well, to and 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 I'm I'm a very hands-on. Uh, consulting heavy kind of recruiter. Right. And there are some people that probably don't need that, don't want that. They want somebody to line up the bodies and they're going to figure it out. Well, they're not my clients. Right. That's okay. That's right. okay. That's okay. How do you find on the on the on the the uh, C level side, how do yes. you how do you find people, how do you find people to to begin to interview and 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 how do you qualify them? Well, you know, I've been in the flow of so many searches over so many years, you know, maybe 100 CEO searches, maybe 100 CFO searches and others, you know, there's just there's just a network there that is uh, self-fulfilling to some extent in terms of people you can tap into. But that doesn't really work. You 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 because at any given time, there's only so many people that will be available in terms of the actual opportunity right. that you're representing. So you, you have to do a lot of fresh research. And this ties out to your sec second question. How do you qualify them? Make sure they're lining up. You know, we're always looking for people that have been through the appropriate level of experience working with private equity firms. They've gone through transactions. We use a lot of tools to get at them. We're constantly building relationships when we see them with people. You know, so if we do a search for a CEO and there's three or four or five that don't get the job, but they look interesting, they get checked and flagged. We check in with them. CFO is the same thing. So over time, you build 
this 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 network of people that you know you can tap into. Um, but you would find you would find that a lot of the key, lot of a lot of times those that are really good at what they do working with private equity can refer people because they know they're going to work well in that environment. So referrals from the key people, board members, others is also part of what we do we do every day. So it's a combination of our own database, a combination of my and others collective network and fresh research every time uh, we start a search and, and and real definition of a scorecard so we can line it up appropriately with what, what the client's looking for. Wow. Fascinating work. I mean, I can see why you're so excited about it. What do you think is unique that you bring to the table that makes you different from everybody else? Yeah, I, I think I think there is something to be said about being in general management positions where you've hired a lot of people and seen a lot of models. I've been in very early stage, pre-series A number five. I've been in $10 billion public companies. I've been in $3 billion public companies as a corporate officer. Um, I've spent a year of my life on the other side of the fence creating coursework as a potential professor. Um, I grew into this business through sales and marketing, uh, GM roles, and ultimately CEO. So I've touched a lot, a lot of different functions, a lot of different size companies, and a lot of different stage companies in different industries along the way. Um, and I think that gives you a, a, a better sense of kind of when you step into these things, how quickly aligning the dots in terms of what people need, and also allows you to represent the opportunity in a very business-like way to those that are engaging with you. So if you're trying to close a CEO and have him or her take a job, and they're worried about or questioning why there's debt on the balance sheet, they need to talk to somebody that can explain it to them where the world can go. And someone that's been a business re business person, if you will, and not just a recruiter, probably has a better sense of that just because they've had more experience in business. Although there's some great people that have only been a recruiting. Right. So I, th I think I bring... A, a nice blend of the strategic and the tactical, uh, which which makes me uh, uh, effective in the market, working with the clients and 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 the candidates. Yeah, and it sounds to me like really it's you have such broad experience in all these different areas that you bring it all to bear in your work. And I think that's right. I think it's been a nice amalgamation of kind of who I am, you know, where I grew up um, tactically in in sales in the early days. Um, Growing as general management CEO, different size companies, different business models, different industries. And um, that's kind of what I do today. Where do you see yourself going in the next 10 years? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I think we've created a great company here. Um, I, I think when I started, we might have been DHR 1.0. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a raw platform where people would eat what they kill. And we've become a you know, very collaborative uh, partnership with the right kind of culture over time. You know, we're re recognized by, by a number of periodicals now as having that culture. Uh, the world is going to change dramatically with AI. Our business will change dramatically with AI. I'm a tech guy, you know, early days. So I see a lot of uh, change happening in this industry and in our company and in my practice that's going to affect the companies and affect us. And that that's exciting for me over the next five to 10 years. I think I'll continue to run this. I'm also going to get probably more involved with some of those core issues inside our company because I have the, the expertise and experience to deal with it. Um, also, uh, probably more with talent acquisition to help us build out the firm because I've been here a long time and I understand the business well and I'm pretty visible in the market. 
Yeah, I mean, you got, I mean, you're all the, your firm DH, DHR Global is all over the world. I mean, it literally is global. We're we're, we're the seventh largest uh, firm in the world now, uh, with 175 partners, probably 400 or so people around the globe, and. When, when I got here, we were not. And the whole idea was to get some geographic scale and get much more strategic with practice areas without um, paying, paying, being very mindful of the entrepreneurial culture we, we built. Mm -hmm. And I think we've done a good job of walking that line uh, without creating a lot of overhead for people who want to come here and start and run their own business, basically. Wow. Amazing. So you see in the future growth and change, and you're going to be a part of it. Yes, and I don't think I, I don't think talent will get anything except more important. Now, people have always said, you know, the algorithm will disintermediate the need, you know, for the for for the for the headhunter consultant recruiter. No, nope. not at the level we recruit. I mean, I think for some roles potentially, but it just means we we're going to have more tools to be even better at what we do. Right. You know, I don't think you're. I don't care where technology goes. I don't really care. I know that AI is going to have some. Very, it's going to come up against it's. God, it's dark side, of course, but it has inherent limitations. And the and the inherent limitations is in AI is that, at least for the foreseeable future, artificial intelligence is not going to have emotion. And since emotion drives decision making, it's always going to take a human being to make to make the assessment, to make the final decision, because there are all these imponderables that are not quantifiable, but that we can sense. And those those are going to become most important. And the people that can build those skills and develop those skills are the ones that are going to be the most powerful in the decades to come. Well, you, yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better. And I I mean, from the day I got into this business, people were saying, well, it's going to get disintermediated. And I said, that's not going to happen with people, you know, consulting about people. Not that's going right. to happen. That's right. And and that's why AI is never going to take over leadership. That's correct. Leaders have, right. I mean, leadership Three, three basic functions, right? Safety, focus, direction, and safety. Those are the three psychological services a leader provides. Those, those are not something AI is going to be able to replicate. And, and, and nor will someone want to follow. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, I think, I think your job is secure. <laughs> I think so. One more, one more question. I'll let you go. What, yeah. um, if, if, what is one thing about yourself? that we wouldn't know about unless you revealed it to us. Huh, that's a that's a good question. Um well, I I I I I already revealed it, which is my father died when I was very young. Um most people wouldn't see that or know that or care about it. Um but that was an incredibly formative part of my life because um I was I wouldn't say I was a wayward kid, but I needed some structure. Um, and I really didn't want to go to private school. Um, I wanted to play baseball, football, which I did. I played baseball in college. My mother sat down with the private school where my brother was and said, you're going. And I said, I don't want to go. Back then, of course, parents could do that. My mother, God bless her soul, died when she was 97, 2021. 20, uh, but she was a real force in helping me see what was possible uh, and engaging my brain appropriately through college and ultimately Harvard Business School. So you wouldn't know my mom. Um, so you wouldn't know me well unless you knew her really well. I guess I'll leave it at that. Okay, really interesting. Yeah, I'm still blessed. My mother's 95. In fact, she's even coming up here to visit. She lives down in Southern California. We're going to see her on Thursday, so that'll be lovely. That's great. That's great to hear. 
Well, Keith, thanks so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Doug, and, um, and, and, and appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit podcast.dougnoll.com slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listening with leaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, dougnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at Douglas E. Noel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.